So who is the author of Hebrews? For many years, scholars said it was the Apostle Paul, but after a few generations, all you have to do is take a look at Paul's writings and compare it to Hebrews, and you can see that they are two completely different styles of writing. And so uh, scholarship, after a few centuries, saying that it was Paul, said no. Then they went through a whole list of other possibilities. They debated about maybe it was Barnabas, the son of encouragement, because this letter is an encouraging letter. And then there was some talk that perhaps it was Sylvanus um, or even Priscilla. Many probably focused more on Apollos being the author. And even Martin Luther believed that it was Apollos that wrote this letter. The writer of the letter is temporarily distanced from his hearers, from the readers. He is away from them, but he will, or he hopes to be reunited with them soon. We can tell from his writing that he is well educated in Judaism, in the Hebrew scriptures, and he is also well schooled in Greek rhetoric. So he encompasses both Jew and Gentile scholarship. So who is the author you're waiting to hear? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Origen, who was a church father, a patristic from the third century, he wrote this. But who wrote the epistle, Hebrews? In truth, only God knows. <laughs> I think we can rest with that agreement. Uh, from origin. So when this book was written, it was written in a particular time period. And for many years, scholars placed it as a, latter, a later Christian um, writing. But more recent scholarship has put it, I think, in its rightful spot, which is a more current um, or more recent uh, to, to the time of Jesus. So originally they thought it was past 100 AD that it was written. Now scholarship would say it was probably between 60 AD and 95 AD. We know it was before 95, 96 because one of the, um, one of the early church fathers quotes it, quotes Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 um, in an article that he, write, that he wrote in around 96 uh, BC or AD. So, so we know that it was written before 95, 96 AD. Um, there is some re references to the temple worship, you know, that would have happened in Jerusalem in this book. And uh, the temple worship would have placed it um, in the first 10 years because the, uh, of that time period because the temple was still intact uh, practicing cult of worship in Israel, in Jerusalem, up until 70 AD when it was destroyed by the Romans. So after 70 AD, many scholars believe if the book was written at that point or later, the references to the temple worship would have been placed in the past tense. But because it's in the present tense, perhaps it was written in that time period of 60 to 70 AD. Lots of debate about this. 
You want to know when the date was? I'm not going to give you the, the date. But I'll tell you, my, my take on it is I think it was written between 60 and 70 A.D. Now, why is this book important? That's what I've been asking God. Why is this book important? This book addresses some very complex theological issues in relationship to debates that were going on in the early church. You thought there was just division in our church today. That's not the case. There was arguments and disagreements from the very beginning. And so what Hebrews is doing is addressing that early church. We think in Rome or in that region of the Roman Empire that is outside of Palestine, we think that it is being addressed to a house church or a group of house churches, and it is trying to address some of the issues that they are facing theologically. One of the concerns is how do we make sense of the Christian faith now that time has been going by? I mean, if Jesus was born a date 4 to 6 B.C., and his death happened approximately 30, 35 years later, so we're talking about Jesus being gone from this earth after 30 A.D., so there's a whole generation that happens from 30 to 60 A.D., And we don't have any writings from the New Testament until about 60 A.D. Mark's Gospel, some of Paul's early letters, and I believe the book of Hebrews. So these are some of the earliest books that we have in our scriptures. And the concern is kind of not a whole lot different maybe than for us. Um, This church was formed about 30 years ago. And... uh, the, the question for the church today might be, will this church be here 60 years from now? Or will it be like so many other churches that we planted that by the age of 40 they began to die? We have a church in the southern part of Paradise Valley, Gloria Day Lutheran Church, that closed this past year. We have several other churches that are on the verge of closing. Now, what's the issue with closing? Well, it's not necessarily a bad thing to close a church, but the question is, is God finished with the church yet or not? And so that's one of the questions that this early church is wrestling with, is God finished? We got Jesus, now we learned all this stuff, are we good? Can we just get on with our lives? And so the same question, I think, needs to be entertained by New Covenant now that we're a generation old. Do we see a future for this congregation? And if so, what does that future look like? And I think the book of Hebrews can help guide you through that question. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. As you work through the book of Hebrews, if you do this with me, you are going to get bored Sorry. You're going to get bored because we don't understand Greek rhetoric. 
It's not normal for us to speak about Greek rhetoric, is it? Nor do we understand a lot about Judaism, except for maybe Alice. And, and so when we, when we take a look at these complex ideas, um, not only might you be bored, uh, but most definitely you could be confused. And so what I'm going to ask is that you work through this with me and that you stick with it and that even though you don't see the payoff in the beginning, eventually you will see the payoff. Eventually God will speak to you about how we can be the church for today and for tomorrow. Now, I want to apologize to those who are watching online. I just walked out of the camera and I saw Mary adjusting it for me. But I get a little excited when we get to the book of Hebrews here, so I, I am dancing a little bit more than I would normally do. So what we have here then in this first chapter of Hebrews is not a letter. You know, oftentimes when you read these New Testament books, uh, we talk about epistles, which is kind of a fancy word for a letter. This is not a letter. This is not an epistle. This is a proclamation. As a matter of fact, most scholars today would tell you this is a sermon. Now, I know that um, Lori was a little disappointed when she found out that originally I was going to do a sermon on chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, because it's such a beautiful piece. And, um, but then I realized it might be the shortest sermon I ever preached. And I didn't want to enter into that area. So I decided to add the whole first chapter. And as I did that, um, so my apologies to you, Lori. You had to read an additional 10 verses this morning. Um, and my apologies to the rest of you. You missed out on the shortest sermon that Steve ever preached. But one of the things that, that it reminds us is that um, our sermons today are way shorter than the sermons that they preached in the early church. This sermon went on and on and on, and it, it captured the attention of the hearers. Think of Acts, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, when Peter would preach, when Paul would preach. And those sermons seemed to go into great detail. And so one of the things that the book of Hebrews teaches us is that sermons don't have to be simple little stories, but sermons can also be complex statements that bring good news to broken hearts, that bring the gospel to hurting people. We are all about here. The other piece that I want to use as an introductory comment is that this is not a polemic against Judaism. This is not a sermon that says Christianity trumped Judaism. Some people have used it in that manner. I will not. I believe what this book is saying is that Christianity is incomplete without Judaism. We need Judaism to bring about the completion of the gospel. As a matter of fact, if we reduce the gospel to some pithy statements from the New Testament, then we have fallen into the same trap that 
many of the early church uh, leaders did by following people like a man named Marcion. Marcion was in the second century, and his, his idea was let's just get rid of all the Old Testament. Let's get rid of all the references. The only thing that really matters is the New Testament. Thankfully, the early church kicked him out and said that wasn't appropriate, nor was that going to be helpful, because we are incomplete without Israel. We need Israel as a part of this message of good news. So, let's use this example. I borrowed this from uh, Tom Long, this professor that I mentioned in my eWeekly. He used the story of a young woman who graduated from Harvard. I'm going to use it in the context of my own family. My great-grandfather immigrated here from, we think from Germany. My brother's done all this uh, DNA testing, you know, and uh, discovered that I'm mostly Swedish. So I don't know how I ended up in Germany. But anyhow, um, my grandfather, great-grandfather came over from Germany because there was free land in Iowa. And uh, he wanted a better life, so he and his two brothers came. And uh, the story, the, the folklore of our family goes that they built a barn and they had cattle and livestock in the barn and they slept in the barn because it was shelter. The next thing that these three brothers did was they built a church and there was a church right next to my grandfather's farm, St. John's Lutheran Church. And then, then they built their homes, then they built their houses. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a fun story. And so my my Great, great, my great-grandfather, um, uh, actually, I'm sorry, it was great-great-grandfather, and then a great-grandfather, and my grandfather, they all had an eighth-grade education, which was not too bad, I guess, back then. But one of the things that happened was my grandfather married my grandmother, who was a school teacher, and she was trained in the classics of school teaching, of education. Uh, matter of fact, one of the things that she taught in her K through 8th grade school, because it was a two-room classroom, one of the things she taught was Latin. So these children learned Latin before they got to the end of the 8th grade. And so my, my grandparents had a vision that their children would go to college and graduate from college. And my, my aunts and uncles on my dad's side, all five of them, they went to college and they graduated from college, which was a huge accomplishment for my family. Now, we could say, well, those children were amazing. They were excellent students. They did well in college. They, got, they graduated. And we could forget the previous generations, right? But that wouldn't be fair. Because what I know from that family folklore is that without those previous generations, there would not be the graduations, the celebration of the graduations that were experienced in that generation. So when we talk about Christianity and Judaism, what we're talking about is the importance of the relationship between the two, between Christianity and Judaism. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ can only be understood in that context. In the early church, it began actually with a priest named Melchizedek. We'll get into that later in this series. And then it also happened with some prophets, 
some major prophets and some minor prophets. But it culminates, it culminates in Jesus, God's own son, appointed by God and an heir to God and his throne. We begin this sermon with this statement. Jesus is the most spectacular thing you have ever seen. Jesus is the most spectacular image of God that you could ever grasp. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint. Now, I want to take a little look at this verse. This is, if any of you uh, know me, like my wife, you know that this is my favorite Bible verse of all the Bible. Uh, Hebrews 1, verse 3. The sun radiates God's own glory. The sun, radiate, the sun is not a mirror. The sun is not reflecting God's glory. The sun radiates. The very essence of the light of God comes forth from the sun. And it expresses the very character. It's interesting because that word gets translated in a lot of the other translations as the imprint. But if you go back to the Greek, the actual word is character in Greek. And so when we talk about the imprint, we're talking about the character of God, the characteristics of God. So the sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character, the very imprint of God. And how does he do this? He, st he sustains it by the mighty power of of his sword. No. No. See, that's what got some of the early church in trouble. You know, they're thinking, well, Jesus should have carried a sword, like Peter, and uh, cut off some ears. And, uh, but, but that's not what it says. What's the writer of Hebrews telling us? By the mighty power of his word. By the mighty power of his word. How did God create the earth? created it with his word. He spoke it into existence. How did God redeem the earth? This broken creation that we are a part of? He did it by his word. The logos, the living word, Jesus, who came to earth. So you begin to see the way that Hebrews is complex but powerful in the way that it brings together different thoughts, different ideas that were prevalent in the early church and within Judaism. So Jesus is the most spectacular thing that you have ever seen. His radiance, his character. And yet God, God's son made purification for you and for me. God's son made purification for us by his sacrifice. So he is not only God's son, but he is also a priest. Now, in the Old Testament, um, we have some references to priests. And in Leviticus 4, is quite an extensive uh, piece of scripture on the role of the priest. I wanted to r refer to just the last few verses, 32 through 35. 
This is what it says about the priest. If the people bring a sheep as their sin offering, it must be a female with no defects. They must lay a hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it at the place where burnt offerings are slaughtered. Then the priest will dip his finger in the blood of the sin offering and put it on the horns of the altar for burnt offerings. He will pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. Then he must remove all the sheep's fat, just as he does with the fat of the sheep presented as a peace offering. He will burn the fat on the altar on top of the special gifts presented to the Lord. Through this process, the priest will purify the people from their sin, making them right with the Lord, and they will be forgiven. Kind of a graphic illustration of a sacrifice on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. It happened once a year on the Day of Atonement. So why is this important? Because what the writer of Hebrews is referring to, guiding us towards, is that Jesus will be our sacrifice. Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, will be sacrificed on the altar for our sins. And when he is sacrificed upon that altar, he will be at the lowest place that one could ever be. And he is chosen to be there for us, for you, so that we might be set free from our sin and brokenness and that we might live with the love of God. So Jesus, by going to the cross, offers himself as the Lamb of God for our sins. So he said, this is the day of atonement for Christians. And then it says, after making the sacrifice, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. If you want to know what God is like, then learn from the Son. As you focus on the Son, you will begin to understand what God is like. I visit with people. I just had a conversation with a newer Christian. She, is, uh, she grew up kind of uh, uh, antecedent to the church, against the church, against Christianity. Um, some things happened in her life um, as a young adult. It's a young mom, and now she has become a believer. And one of the things that, um, that she talked about, she said, I've been reading through the Old Testament, and I'm getting a little scared. And I said, are you confused from what you're reading? And she said, yes. And I said, well, let's have you start with the Gospels. And then we can go back and begin to look at the Old Testament because you need to, read the, you need to be able to read the Old Testament from the lens of the Gospels. As we know Jesus, then we will understand more clearly what God was about in the Old Testament. And this is the precise reason why I tell you that Jesus was no angel. He was no angel. Well, let's talk a little bit about angels. Angels in the Old Testament had a broad range of roles and duties. 
and they focused around revelation and redemption. So in Exodus, in chapter 3, let's go clear back to Exodus, in chapter 3, verse 2. This is the day that Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, and the, um, as he led the flock into the wilderness and he came to the Sinai, the mountain of God, it says in verse 2, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Remember the blazing fire, the blazing bush, the story about Moses encountering that? I don't know if you ever saw that in the very beginning of that verse. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire in the middle of a bush. Now, we've always assumed that it was God, but God used an angel as his messenger to be able to present God's self to us. Now, angels help us to understand revelation, and they help us to understand redemption. There's a couple of angelic stories that I would like to lift up for you today. The first one is from Luke chapter 1. Do you remember the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, cousin to Mary? And how Zechariah, it was his appointed time to be in the temple. So he was in the temple all alone because he was a Levitical priest. And he was presenting the sacrifice. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And the angel revealed to him some important information. That his wife, who had been barren, unable to bear a child that his wife was pregnant and that she was going to give birth to a son and that Zechariah should name him John, that he should not ever have alcohol touch his lips because he would be a, a Levite, a priest. He'd have a special function as the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. So, Zechariah hears this, and he doesn't believe it. Surprised? Not really, are you? I mean, your wife is maybe, I mean, let's say 50, 60? How old was she? I don't know, 40? But she's not ever been able to have a child. And now... The angel says, you get a kid, and it's going to be a boy, and you're going to name him John, and he's going to have an important function for the role of God. So this Zechariah doesn't believe it, and all of a sudden, God speaks through the angel again and reveals to him, because you didn't trust me, you will not speak until the child is born. And so he goes out and he begins to tell everybody, well, he can't tell everybody. He asks for one of those writing boards, you know. Mm, 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 mm. Um, and, and he begins to write to the people that God appeared to him in an angel, through an angel, and revealed to him that they're going to have a son. 
And lo and behold, maybe he should have checked with his wife first, but she could have told him. Yeah. So that's a story of an angelic revelation. There is also stories of angelic uh, stories of redemption. And um, a favorite of mine is um, about a Roman officer named Cornelius. He is the head of the Italian army band. That's the literal Greek word. They call it a cohort in a lot of translations. But I like the, the idea of a band because maybe they had some musical instruments too. But anyhow, he was the head of the Italian cohort. And he is an important man. He is a prominent Roman official in the military. And an angel appears to him. Now, one of the, the things about him is that he is a God-fearer. So even though he's a Gentile, he's a believer in God, in the Jewish sense of that word. So he, he believes in the God of Moses, the God of the prophets, and so he is not only a believer in the God of Israel, but he is also a very generous man. It says that he was very generous to the poor. An angel of the Lord appears to him, and the angel says to him, there is a man in this town off the sea called Joppa, and he's staying with a man named Simon the Tanner. His name is Simon Peter. I want you to send some of your soldiers and go get Simon Peter and bring him to you. So this man is more trusting than Zechariah because he sends uh, part of his cohort down to Joppa to collect Simon Peter. And as he does that, Simon Peter comes with him. Um, meanwhile, Simon Peter's had a couple of visions from God. And, um, you know, in particular, for this particular story, the visions have focused on eating, which makes Simon Peter my kind of guy. And he is looking at food on this big white sheet that comes down from heaven. And he's looking, I can't eat that, I can't eat that, I cannot eat that. It's not kosher. And then God speaks to Simon Peter and he said, Simon, why do you call unclean things that I call clean? This vision happens more than once for Simon Peter. So he begins to get the point through repetition. And what he realizes is that, that he is to bring the gospel, the good news, to anyone who wants to hear it. So he gets invited by some Roman soldiers to come and see the head of the Roman, uh, the Italian cohort in, in Rome. And um, uh, as he goes to see this this man, Cornelius, Cornelius bows down to him and begins to worship him. And Simon Peter says, oh, no, 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 brother, get up. Nobody gets worshipped around here except for Jesus. And then what happens is that Simon Peter begins to speak to, uh, to Cornelius about Jesus. And by the end of this conversation, the God-fearers, uh, Cornelius and all of his family, 
they, they become believers because they begin to experience gifts of the Holy Spirit. They begin speaking in tongues. They begin to, exp- to experience these different expressions of the Holy Spirit. And at that point, Peter makes the decision, let's baptize them. So these are, we believe, perhaps some of the very first Gentiles who were baptized into this Judaic Christian faith. Remember, we're not one or the other. We're together. We are nothing without Israel. And so what happened is that an angel appeared to Cornelius to bring Simon Peter to him so that he might, so that Cornelius might be able to hear the full expression of the good news of Jesus Christ and that he might enter into that redemption in Jesus Christ. And so he is a believer. He expresses his Holy Spirit and he is baptized. So Cornelius and his family all become baptized members of the church. This is a story of angels bringing God's redemption to people. So angels existed. And I believe that they do exist even today. And they are probably higher up on the food chain than you or me. However, their existence is purposeful. And to bring about revelation, to bring about redemption, to bring about God's love, um, that's their purpose. Yet, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, as, as important as these angels are, they're still not equal to or higher than Jesus. The next section of our reading, which we're just going to plow right through here, verses 5 through 13. This section documents the superiority of the Son to the angels. This section begins and ends with a rhetorical question. In, uh, in verse 5 and in verse 13, let's take a look at verse 5 here. In verse 5, it begins, For God never said to an angel, they put it into a statement, but um, it's really in the Greek uh, intended as a question. For did God ever say to any angel what he said to Jesus? And then at the very end, at verse 13, And did God ever say to any of the angels? So those two rhetorical questions at the beginning, at the end of this section, uh, form the the mid, the the important uh, chunk of what we want to take a quick look at here. So let's take a look at these verses. Because in between these verses, we have the sermon of this particular section. Verse 5 is a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7, where the psalm says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So when, when Jesus um, comes to earth, one of the things that, that, that we describe his 
uh, presence here is not just as a human, although he was human, but also as God's son. That was actually my first paper that I ever wrote in seminary. I had to write a paper on um, how would you describe the relationship between God and Jesus. It was my um, introduction to Christian formation, uh, Christian faith and formation class. And and so I remember um, feeling pretty radical because my thesis was God was fully divine and God was fully human. Doesn't make any sense in the world sense, right? I mean, how can you add up 100% plus 100% and get 100%? It doesn't work. But it works with God, with God's Son. Because Jesus is the begotten of God. That's what Psalm 2 is talking about. Who is this Messiah that's coming? He will be the begotten of God. And so that is Psalm 2. Shortly after that is a reference here to uh, 2 Samuel 7. Some of you remember that because I brought it up multiple times. In 2 Samuel 7, it says that, uh, that God will be the, the descendant of David, that God will be his father, and he will be his son. And so there are two interpretations of that particular text uh, in Jude- within that first century Judaism. One interpretation was that that was a reference to Solomon, you know, to David's literal next son. The other interpretation was, no, that's a, uh, a reference to the anointed one, the Messiah, that is to come. And so you have these two threads of interpretation, Solomon, Messiah. And so what the book of Hebrews is trying to explain to us is that Jesus is God's son. He is that 100% human, 100% divine. And as God's son, he has been begotten by God. He's been birthed by God. Verse 6 reminds us that God's firstborn descended into the world and displayed his glory. Now, how did Jesus display his glory? This is the part that gets messy because the early church didn't necessarily like that all the images that they had of Jesus were images of a bloodied, beaten, crucified man. And so, how did Jesus receive God's glory? By being bloodied, by being beaten, by being crucified, by being the Lamb of God. Verse 7 tells us then that all of God's angels will worship him and that God's son will make his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. This is a reference to Psalm 104. Now if you want a, a, a more detailed explanation of these, I'm going to do this in my teaching, uh, which we will be taping and then putting online uh, if you have a group that's meeting, forming, you can uh, watch the teaching um, or you can receive the notes from me, however you want to do that. But um, 
the, the point here is that um, I'll go into more detail on these scriptural references. So Psalm 104 is where the angels are described as messengers with wings, and also they're described as, as the wind. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, messengers of wings of, of the wind and ministers of fire and flame. Now, interesting, when you think about Pentecost, what were the two natural phenomena that happened in that upper room as the disciples gathered? There was a mighty wind, and then there was flickers of flame over each of the disciples. Yet, these roles, the roles of the angels, are to assist the sun. They are not equal to the sun. In verses 8 and 9, it tells us that the sun does not belong to the created order as the angels do. Now, that's something that happens or that's, that's explained throughout the scriptures is that the angels are a part of the created order as you and I are part of the created order. And so the angels are different as we are different from the sun. Psalm 45 describes the sun's throne as eternal. That's how it's different. His throne endures forever and ever. He is described as the anointed and as we might be familiar with that reference again from 2 Samuel 7. The last few verses, verses 10 through 12, um, refers to Psalm 102, which specifies the relationship of the Son to the creation. So the angels will decay, they will change. Jesus, the Son, remains the same and will live forever. So that's the quick and dirty rendition of that. So why did the author of Hebrews want to proclaim the majesty of Jesus? Many of the early Christians had tired over the delay of Jesus' coming. You remember how Jesus said that he would come again? In that first generation of Christianity, they thought literally that he was going to come again within that generation. So now that they're into the second generation of Christianity, some Christians have begun to tire of waiting. We got to go to Sunday worship again? When is Jesus going to show up? And so some of these early Christians were tired. They had been expecting Jesus and he had not come. They began to doubt the proclamation that had been delivered to them. They also saw some of their brothers and sisters in Christ being persecuted. Now, none of them had been put to death at this point, but some had been persecuted and some had lost all their possessions because they were Christians. And so because of that, some began to abandon their faith. Hey, if it's going to cost me my house, my my retirement, my, my wealth, I don't know that I want to give it up. So if I have to give up that or Jesus, maybe I'll give up Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews is an interesting character because normally, psychologically, what would we do? Well, what's the issue? 
Let's try to address the issue. You're tired. You need some rest. You, uh, you have some doubts. We need to encourage your faith. Well, maybe it's, you know, I just don't want to end up like some of those other people who've, who've been beaten up. And, and so we, we maybe should have a sermon about trust. But what does the writer of Hebrews do? He preaches a sermon about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? Who is this Messiah? Who is this one who suffered? Who is this bloodied, beaten figure that you keep looking at? He is the Son of God. He is the one that came from on high, and he is the one that will be seated at the right hand of God. So when we think about this, the writer is doing something very strange. Instead of addressing the issues, he's going full bore into the subject of God. Who is God? God can be seen most clearly in Jesus Christ. When you see that picture of Jesus, you have seen God. So I'm going to have some questions for you. And uh, so I invite you to wrestle with those questions. Some of them may seem silly. Some of them may not apply. You don't have to use them all. You may have your own questions that, that crop up. And so address those questions. But as we begin this journey through the book of Hebrews, what this writer wants us to see is this majestic image of God in Jesus Christ and how he is the culmination like my dad and his siblings he is the culmination of what families ancestors had been waiting for will you pray with me gracious God we thank you for the gift of your son Jesus and as we contemplate these words, stir in our hearts, Lord, stir us up that we may see you more clearly, that we may hear your word, and that we may be revived with faith and love. Amen.